I want to talk about two things today. I want to talk about how I got here, my experience and the West Bank living under the occupation. And I want to talk about uh, the other half is how did all this mess happen? Who is Hamas? Who is the PLO? What they stand for? And, you know, how they were created. So I finished high school in the city of Kalkilia and the West Bank. I'm Jamil Kadura, my last name. Uh, Mediterranean Delhi, of course, I've seen so many faces here that I'm very familiar with. I grew up in the West Bank of Jerusalem, of, uh, of, um, of Jordan. It was the West Bank of Jordan. So I, um, I was born in 1960, which I witnessed the 1967 war. I was seven years old. Um, I grew up, um, when, when the war started, I was seven years old, we were playing like marbles with my brothers outside. Around four o'clock in the afternoon, my mom ran, come on, come on, you need to come to the house. The war just started. We were asked to leave to the mountains, to leave the cities like they've been asked in Gaza to do, so they can take care of things, I guess. And my dad, um, my dad was, very old man, my, my dad, let's go back for a second. My mom married my dad when he was already married. So my mom is the second wife in the house. Back then it was kind of semi-normal because of poverty and less education that women have. Now if you tell my sister I want to marry you while I'm married, she'll tell you go to what, you know. <laughs> so my mom married my dad. Some of my dad's kids already older than my mom, you know. My, um, my, my first, my, I want to call her stepmom. I always call her my mom. We call them both moms. Anyway. Uh, they got along really well, and in, in many cases they teamed up on my dad. It was very unusual for two wives at the same house to get along well. In, 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 in our home, we called them the enemy, but really in our case, they weren't. They were wonderful. I don't, I, I don't believe I knew which one was my real mom until I was probably six or seven years old. That's probably hard to believe, but that's a fact. We called Mama Fatmi and Mama Aishi. So. Anyway, we go back how we, so we were told to leave the city of Kalkilia, and my dad was really old in his time. We had some, a couple of horses and a mule. We were farmers, my dad owned some land. And my dad already was born in the 1948 section when we come back to, and then he moved to 1967. Anyway, we moved, we put, uh, my share was to carry the radio, that day. everybody carries something. My mom has a little gold, a couple uh, bracelets and a necklace my dad gave her when she got married. And um, they put my, my dad and this mule and we start traveling. Who's traveling with us? My, my stepsister's kids. My nephews and nieces, which, which were older than me at the time. We start traveling to go to the mountains and like they asked us to. And the way I remember this like yesterday, amazing how you remember things when you grow older, remember it. So in the way to the mountains, where they said we want to rest, we went in this cave to rest or some kind of an opening in the rocks. And we rested. When we were walking in, we saw this guy sleeping right on the door, like on the entrance. And you know, in the morning when we went, we came out, he's still sleeping. So I found out later that he was dead, basically. So we reached the town of Rafidia. Rafidia is a, is a small, very town known of its olives and around the city of Nablus, which is only like 15 kilometers from Calcilia. That's what we want. 
So they put us these tents and, and um, the tents back then was four blankets and a blanket on the top. These tents, I tell my kids, look how sophisticated the tents now we have in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Also. I believe we stayed there for like three weeks. And then, uh, okay, we stayed in the country. A lot of people at this time left the country, went to Jordan, Lebanon, the surrounding area. Uh, my dad had this land, it was his heart and his hard work. He said, no, they have to kill us to leave here. We have, we're going to stay. We stayed. I remember when we were standing in the refugee camps, all these um, um, charity organizations will come and feed us. They will give us olives, cheese, and bread. The main Middle Eastern breakfast. Like olive cheese and bread in every Middle Eastern table. You see the olive bar we had at the deli. Where so, you know, so many that the American Red Cross would come, Jewish organizations would come, Muslim organizations, Christians organizations would come and give us and give us clothing and stuff. Just to let you how brutal it was, the beginning of us living in that camp. I remember seeing a lady that was boiling stones in water to make her kids think it's food until they go to bed, to sleep. That was the first week of us leaving and living in that. That was a brutal week because nobody, no, no organization could get to us to give us anything or feed us. Anyway, we went back after this, and again, I'm carrying the radio back. My, my assignment, carry the radio, and the radio was just, so we just got it, and everybody in the neighborhood would come and listen to the news in our house because we have a radio. Other people didn't have a radio. So in the way back, and my sister, my mom's gold, in my sister's underwear, my mom said, if you lose them, I will kill you. That's all we have now. Because in our mind, the Israeli soldiers know how conservatives, the Muslim and the Middle Eastern cultures, they will not ask a woman to take her underwear to check it. In our minds, you know, they went deeper than that now. But anyway, so in the way back, uh, we have checkpoint after checkpoint after checkpoint. We're just walking, civilians walking. We get to this checkpoint, he asked me, to, to give me the radio. I was so scared, I dropped the radio on the floor. Before the checkbook, I will never forget this, before we get to the checkpoint, like a couple hundred meters, my, my sister, which is a year older than me, so I'm assuming eight or nine years old, she tell my mom, I'm having a hard time with them, they might fall. I've never seen the face of my mom, say that if, they f if, if you lose them, if they fall, I'm going to kill you. Basically, this is all what we have now. They didn't check my sister. We went home, we found all the animals in the town out, and uh, basically the town's abandoned. The, the Jewish neighborhoods, Kalkilia uh, is, um, is on the border of non, the 1967 war. Like the, for instance, like you drive or you walk 15 minutes to an Israeli town. So a lot of the Israeli uh, army, and they took almost all thing, everything that's worth from all these houses. They looted the houses and all this. Okay, you are now under the Israeli occupation. That's 1967. So with, with, uh, so we're going to go back and say this experience I had. At 16 years old, you get an Israeli identification. It's in Arabic, but you know, it's an Israeli identification to identify who you are as a Palestinian living in the West Bank. 
So I got this uh, I, 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 Israeli identification at 16. I decided I wanted to come to the United States when I graduated from high school a couple of years later. Uh, I go to the embassy in, in Jerusalem. I get rejected. I want these papers and that paper for you to, be, to go to the U.S. Okay, I get the papers you want. They go there. So traveling from my city to Jerusalem is a big travel. Like, you know, it's about now on, this, on the freeway, probably like 40 minutes. But it took you all day to travel because so many checkpoints, they have to check you. And you have to take taxi from a taxi from a taxi. So, okay, you know, give me this, give me that. I go back, go back. And at the same time, they said, we cannot come to the United States, you know. They rejected me. And, uh, okay, so I decided to go to England. My brother was living in England at the time. I went to England just to get a visa. And then they rejected me there. I went to, back to Jordan in the way. Remember, I have a Jordanian passport now because we are the West Bank of Jordan. And they rejected me again. It turned out, I found out later that the first time I went to that embassy or the second time they wrote a date behind the cover of my passport in the corner where the stables are. And I didn't see it in very small writing. So when you go to a second ambassador, an American embassy, they, they first open that cover and see if there is a date there that means you've been rejected once. You automatically get rejected. They don't even listen. We got rejected, I realized this, okay, I stayed in my hometown after I came from England and what I always wanted to come here. I have a nephew that was in Minneapolis, um, you know, from my stepmom, his mom, anyway. And uh, so I decided I go get, okay, there is an embassy in, Tel in Jerusalem and the counselor in Tel Aviv. The, the, the American consulate is where the Israeli goes to basically. So from my, yeah, that's how I remember it anyway. So I said to my mom, I want to try to get a Lesebese, which is an Israeli travel document. They give it to the Palestinians and the West Bank to travel with if they, want, if they don't want to use their Jordanian passport. So I went there and got this Israeli embassy. I went to the consulate in Tel Aviv because frankly, I want them to think I'm an Israeli, you know. And there is a lot of Israelis and Jewish people look like me, remember, because there's a lot of Moroccan, Middle Eastern Jews that we lived with for ages. I took a friend of mine, we went to the consulate in, in, uh, in Tel Aviv, and uh, uh, I'm, think, I'm going there thinking there's no way it's going to happen, basically, you know, just give it the last shot. My friend waited for me down, so it was like 9 o'clock in the morning, I went up, and... Uh, um, I get in the embassy, people sitting on tables like this, and uh, we are in line, and chairs, we are in line, and there's an African-American as a clerk among the four or five clerks there. I said, I want to go to that one. Like, I want to try to have her talk to me. So everybody, you know, when my turns come, you know, I think, next, you go, you go, you go. When the African-American lady said, next, I went. I felt more comfortable with her being a minor, I guess, or you're going to say. So she said, okay, why are you going to the United States for? I told her, you know, I, my brother is there, and I want to go visit him and all this stuff. And she said, okay, sit down. That's it. I sat down. It was about 10 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> now, I promise you, I stayed there until about 5 o'clock in the afternoon. When I was sitting down, it was all chairs around me all empty chairs. 
And I said, sat thinking, what are they going to do to me here? Like, she told me to sit down and wait. I sat down. Like, five minutes before they closed, she called Mr. Kadura, and she handed me the Lesibese, my travel document. I didn't open it. I was so scared to open it. My friend is waiting downstairs all this time. So I went, came down. I was like, oh, what happened? Did you get the visa? I said, I'm scared to open it. He said, no, open it. I've been waiting here all day. I want to see it. I opened that... Um, and I saw this beautiful eagle, very colorful American eagle. And that just was the most satisfying, beautiful things I've ever seen probably up to that point. I got the visa to come to the United States. I decided to go to Minnesota because my nephew lives there. I went home. I said, Mom, I got the visa. She said, no way. I showed it to my brothers. My brother said, Mom, he got it. Next day, the very next day, I flew out. Because don't tell anybody, Jamil. You know, you every, you know, the the wall. We grew up saying the walls have ears, because you don't want anybody to know. You just leave anyway. I left. I came to Minneapolis. I start. How old were you? I was. Uh, I want to say 19 and a half, 20 at this time. I remember I spent a little time in England after high school. So I came now. I came in with 35 dollars and I started working. Uh, it took a, a while to get a job. I'm like, it was December 8, 1981 in Minneapolis and I'm coming from Jerusalem. I walk on this highway called Highway 12, I never forget it in Minneapolis, and um, looking for jobs. I walk in like, do you need a dishwasher? Do you need a dishwasher? I don't want to say you need a cook or you need a supervisor, just a dishwasher, anybody that can clean. And they wouldn't, like everybody's full and not hiring. I went to this place, it's called Jolly Troll Smorgasbord, which is all you can eat, <laughs> Swedish food, Scandinavian. <laughs> so I walked to this uh, place and I said, uh, you, you know, you have uh, an opening, you know, for it. They said, no, sir, we're not hiring. I started walking out. Something told me, this is a nice guy, go back and talk to him. I reached almost the door, I went back and I said, sir, this is my story. I just came here, like, I don't have any money. I live in an attic in my nephew's uh, house, and I need a job. I will do this. Whatever you ask me, I will do. I'll be hard worker. Just a kid trying to get a job. And he said, come and see me tomorrow. I don't have it anyway. I came, I came to see him next day. I was waiting for him before he told me, and he hired me. So I start washing dishes, oh, this is great, you know, part-time, then it became full-time, then I start cooking with him, and I had a little bit of experience in cooking or in food back in, in my um, uh, middle school. There was a falafel cart outside. I used to help the guy in recess, and he gave me a sandwich, and that's where the falafel hummus sandwich came from. He sold falafel or hummus sandwich. I said, why don't we do falafel hummus sandwich one time? And he said, no, you're crazy, you don't know. I said, let's try it. I keep telling him, I would be th thinking about helping him. And he said, one time, let's do it. So I went home, I made this little sign, I put falafel hummus sandwich. That night I didn't sleep because I, like, I was so excited. <laughs> you know, and I'm just helping for my sandwich. Anyway, that falafel hummus sandwich was the best seller he ever saw, and oh, you know, great. So that's the food experience I have. So I started working in this restaurant, and I started moving from position to another. I loved the business. It was great. At this time, I'm going to Minnesota School of Business for business management. I didn't finish school. I said, I will finish later. And I keep saying later, later. I get, I 
keep getting promotions in, in the business and, you know, doing good. Then I moved to the Sheraton Hotel. From the Sheraton Hotel, I got an offer with the Sheraton Crabtree in Raleigh here. And at that point, I was like a banquet manager slash restaurant manager. Like, and then my colleagues, don't go. This is a southern state. Stay here in Minneapolis. You won't like North Carolina. That's the best thing I've ever done, coming to North Carolina. I worked at the Radisson, at the Sheraton, moved to the Radisson, the same ownership. I wound up at the Durham Hilton, just to make it fast. My last job was as, at Hotel Europa. A lot of you know this. Now it's the Sheraton Hotel. I became a director of food and beverage by then, which is the highest position you reach in this industry, period, you know, in hotels. So I, uh, I'm taking my wife and Frankie Street one day. We passed by this hole in the wall, they used to call it, three doors from the deli. I said, Angela, you know, I think we, we, I would love to open my own and blah, blah. We have $16,000 saved up. I went to, told them I'm leaving and I went to United Restaurant Equipment. We get one small deli case, 12 chairs and six tables. That's what Middeli was open. That was in April of 91. It was so exciting. My mom was here by that time. We went with my, my mom would come and help me and my sister. It was my mom, my sister, and I, and working hard and going so excited. And, and it was really amazing. It was the American dream coming through, and you just have to work harder and harder and harder. You know, I would go to the deli 3, 3 o'clock in the morning, 4 o'clock in the morning, make all the food, then go to campus, put flyers all over campus, especially of the day, and then go and serve every day, like... Anyway, and we started expanding, and we did really well uh, with help with the town. Anyway, until the fire happened. Uh, the fire happened was the most devastating thing that happened to me here, and not business-wise. I'm 63 years old now. I don't really need. I'm fine. It's just it was so much memories in it. It was a community center. It was something that irreplaceable to me. It was a beautiful place with so much memories in it. And... Um, that now we are rebuilding and uh, the night of the fire i'll just touch really quick i'm looking at the clock uh, it was uh, a roofer was batching the roof and basically he used the torch the fire the place went on fire and and, um, and it was really hard uh, the hardest thing was for my employees and my family but I've, i learned a lot at this age uh, because of hardship with it and um, uh, while the fire is going on, we had a meeting outside and when I took my employees, they would look deflated, holding each other. Uh, the average employee there was probably 13, 14 years. We had employees that have been there 16 years. And I said, okay, you know, we took them and this, I said, oh, we went through COVID, we're gonna go through this, it's all gonna be good, you know? And I had no idea what ne what, what's gonna happen next. I was in a shock. And, and um, we rallied against each other and we opened the story venue for caterings. And was the biggest therapy for me is to see the vans going and the employees working. While the fire is going on and I, I see this man next to the cleaners, my wife is hugging on him and my assistant. I said, what's going on, honey? She said, oh, he said, he said, I'm starting GoFundMe. And it's almost, I got offended. I said, no, we don't need GoFundMe. You know, our business is insured, you know, and you know, there's no, there is, uh, it's not fair for people to pay. He said, it's not for your business, it's for your employees. And that's when I broke down completely like little kids. I couldn't help it and everybody was looking at me and said, oh, Jimmy, get a hold of yourself. Anyway, 
uh, I want to talk about this, about the community, and I will finish with this uh, part. Uh, there is uh, $216,000 in six days. They raised uh, the first two days $140,000. I, so, I did so much fundraising in my life here in the Delhi with other community members. That was unheard of, what they did. And then we had to stop it after six days. We decided, okay, I think this is good. This will carry us for a while until our catering picks up. Then we start paying our employees. So what we did, we put it in the Chamber of Commerce, special account, and then we paid the employees for the hours they worked, and then GoFundMe kicked in to make them make what they used to make before the fire. It didn't just help the employees, it helped me a lot as an, to keep my employees, you know, because, okay, you know. Anyway, so uh, it was an effort of my employees and a collective effort with the community. This community is, uh, is unbelievable. One last thing about the community, you don't die in Chapel Hill. If you want to live, you don't die. It's up to you. Uh, the, what happened with the September 11th as a Palestinian, when September 11th happened, um, people came in to support me. Uh, I had September, October, November, December, probably January and February. The busiest days the Delhi ever seen was during and after September 11th disaster. For this community to come and help me, being a Palestinian and being an Arab Middle Easterner, so this is unheard of, honestly. This is something, it's almost overwhelming. It makes you feel uncomfortable. So no matter what I say, I can't stop talking about the community if I wanted to stop, but I have to stop. <laughs> now we're gonna go with, um, with uh, we're gonna see how, what happens here. Why did it happen now? Who's Hamas? As you know, after the Ottoman empires, I get 15 minutes. After the Ottoman empires, uh, the, the, um, you know, the state of Israel became the state of Israel. The Jews immigrated uh, from, 19, started the immigration from 1940. A lot of people think it's 48. Um, agreement, size Pico, between um, the English and the French decided we want to bring the Jews to, the, to, the, to Palestine, to live with the Palestinians. And um, we're going to divide Palestine. The Arabs said, no, I don't want to give 57% of Palestine when it's my home. Remember, we lived with the Jews for years and years, thousands of years, and we had Jews in Palestine at the time. They were like a very, very small minority. The problem was the Zionists that coming from Europe and the United States that said, okay, this is my home, you don't belong here. So you, the, the Palestinian people live in there for God knows when, thousands of years, and this is, his, this is their home. And then that's when the fight started. When they came, then 1948 came in, and the Arab, the Arab countries fought Israel. Israel was a lot more experienced because lots of the Jews fought in World War I and World War II, and they have more connection to the West. And they got, you know, a, a lot of reasons, but really that's the main reason that the British want them there. When the British brought them there, then they start fighting the British. They want to kick the British out of there so they can take the land basically by themselves. And during the takeover, a lot of Palestinian villages got vanished off the face of the earth. A lot of massacres happened. So we talk about terrorists. 
Of course, killing civilian sisters. Who's going to argue this? You know, but that's when it started. So it become, in my opinion, it became something is okay. It's acceptable to do it later because it happened to us. That's the way this the the the, the state was established. There were three organizations in Palestine: then the Haganah Army, another one called the uh, I don't want to misname it. Two others. They were, they were basically uh, illegal organization that fought the Palestinian people and killed so many of them. With these three organizations, that's how the IDF became an army, all these three organizations together. So, you know, they massacred tons of Palestinians, thousands of Palestinians, they took their home. They displaced those Palestinians out of where they live. And... Um, that's how it started. Okay, so then we're gonna go because we're gonna we're gonna touch a little bit on how, what can we do here. So the Oslo, the Oslo Accord came in. Of course, the PLO came in after the 1948 war to d d defend Palestine and fight the Israelis. The Oslo Accord came in. We were very excited. I remember that they threw confetti and the Israeli soldiers. People were happy and excited on both sides. The Oslo Accord, which it says that the Palestinian is the main representative, the PLO is the main representative of the Palestinian people. The, the PLO has to denounce uh, um, uh, uh, armed uh, attacks against Israel. The, the PLO has to recognize the state of Israel. But the state of Israel, the PLO also have to, the, the state of Israel would recognize that the West Bank, the West Bank, which is uh, in Gaza, I don't this is, okay, this, okay, take this off for a second. This is Palestine, Israel, okay? This is the West Bank. They took this part in 1948. They left the West Bank and Gaza. Gaza became under Egyptian rule. The West Bank became under the Jordanian rules because it's the Jordan River and this is Jordan. So in 1967, they took the whole thing. Okay, so with, with this said, where are the, how did they take it? Take, 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 okay. What happened to the Palestinian villages here? Why is there refugees in Gaza? Refugees in Gaza because of all these Palestinian vi villages that were massacred and displaced moved to Gaza. Why would the city have a refugee in it? These refugees came from these cities. Also, these people here ran to villages inside the West Bank, they went to Lebanon, they went to Syria, and, and uh, uh, they basically get this. Okay. The Oslo Accord said for Israel to recognize that this is going to be Palestine, the West Bank and Gaza, it's gonna be Palestine. We're gonna make, after five years, it's going to be Palestine. We're gonna withdraw slowly, slowly, slowly until then three years from the five years, we're gonna recognize the state of Palestine existed. None of this happened for one reason, settlements. They grew the settlements like, I, I went home a few years ago, I'm thinking, holy cow, what is this? Everywhere you go, there's a settlement. The settlement, settlement, settlement. And I want to show you, okay, I want to I wanna tell you how Hamas started and what Hamas is, then I'm going to show you this clip, which we were really shocked that CNN, as a Palestinian, we were really shocked that CNN showed it, because it's such a bias media, the American media for the Israeli 
uh, uh, for Israel, and everybody knows that. Uh, one thing is the effect of is why America is so pro-Israel. First, I think religious reasons, which all you know, you know better than me. The second thing is political. Here we go, we get this country in the middle of the Middle East, in the middle of oil. We can swim in the petroleum there with the oil. The second thing, we have all the Holy Land. You know, the Holy Land is really important. That's why the AI pack is a bunch of Israelis that are supported by conservative Christians that believe in that. This is, okay, fine. In my opinion, it's all good. You take this, give us this, and let's have a two-state solution. No, because they can't. There's too much hard settlers there that ready to eat the Arabs. There is in Netanyahu's cabinet, the, this, is, this is the most right-wing government Israel ever had. For him to stay in power, he had to bring Itamor in and Ben Gafir. Those, those ministers, they don't believe in anything called Palestine or even Arabs. You know, so enlarging the settlement, making more settlement, harassing the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is the most beautiful and important spot for the Muslims, uh, killing the, the civilians. The settlers became a second army you're dealing with, which Biden just yesterday said, the settler needs to cool down, otherwise we're going to do something about it. Anyway, so after the Oslo Accord was the first intifada, the, the Palestinian uprising, uh, you know, and then after the Palestinian uprising, <coughs> the Oslo Accord came in, 1993. They, okay, you know, they brought the Palestinian in the West Bank here. None of the other agreements with Israel were done. Okay, the settlement getting bigger. You know, the, 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 the displacement of Palestinians getting more. Everything that Oslo Accord called for, it's the opposite. They're doing the opposite. They don't want and I'm talking about an Israeli government. They don't want a Palestinian state. They don't want Palestinian existence. One of their ministers, I forgot his name, a few days ago said, why don't you nuke Gaza? This is the first time an Israeli minister talk about a nuclear power. They always say, we don't have it. Oops, he's saying nuke Gaza, you know. Anyway, so Hamas, in, in the two, in the, the first intifada was in 87, it, it finished in 93. In the, the year 2000, Hamas said, oh, they brought the BLO here, Yasser Arafat and all this. I don't want to make peace because they promised something they, they didn't do. I don't want to fall in the same trap. So what happened, with, Hamas got established in about 1987. When I was growing up back home, I didn't know what Hamas is. The first, the first time I went home, I saw Hamas in our house graffitis, and I tell my friend, what is this? He said, that's a new resistant organization, like the PLO, but on the religious side. So how did Hamas establish? Hamas got established after the Oslo Accord because Israel wouldn't do what promised to the Palestinians. So, and also Hamas started growing more in Gaza than the West Bank. And then they said, okay, you know, after the second intifada in 2000, they said, okay, let's make an election in Gaza. And so who, who wins the election will go with it between Hamas and the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization. They made the election. Hamas got, I think, 76 seats of versus 41 seats or something or 42 seats. Who was the in charge of that election and oversaw the election? President Jimmy Carter's organization. 
And just in case if you don't know, President Car Jimmy Carter had an organization that was in charge of uh, if any country wants to invite him to make sure the elections are cool and good. He said that. He said to himself, it was a legit. Okay, Hamas won that. Here is the key. That's really what I want to focus on more than anything. I have a couple minutes left. The people elected Hamas. Okay, immediately the United States cut tie, no aids to Gaza, and we are going to punish who sends aid to Gaza. This is a terrorist organization. Exactly what Israel wants them to say. Usually Israel draw the blueprint the U.S. implemented, period. They said, we can't, we can't deal with a terrorist organization, blah, 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 blah. If I was, I was hoping they would say, okay, why don't we work with these guys and see? They, the people elected them. We wanted, the, the United States wanted election in Gaza. It happened. It didn't go its way. Then it's bad election. Them and the, okay, give them a chance. See what, aid them, help them. See if you can rehab them. I mean, terrorist is part of that region. It happened on both sides. It's not just one side is killing the civilians and the other side. But what's happening to Gaza now is very, it's like a genocide. It's something that I wake up every morning running to the TV to watch. I find myself many mornings crying by myself and the lazy boy in the house and the chair. Uh, hoping that will be a ceasefire soon, hoping will be a hostages trade or release. Hamas, in my opinion, did this because they want 9,000 prisoners in the Israeli jails. 9,000 prisoners. Do I have two more minutes? Okay. I'll tell you this and I've, I'm finished. I was, I had, a, I had a, an identification, I wasn't 16 yet. One night, we had a three-bedroom house. My aunt, my mom's aunt, staying in one of the rooms. I was with, we have one room for the guest, and all of us get stay, sleeping in one room. One night, bam, 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 bam. We wake up, what's going on? The Israeli soldiers is in the house, Sa'iri military. They knock on the door, and the bedroom door. My mom said, who is it? Because we're used to it as Palestinians. She said, he said, police. He was the farthest from police. It was military that was in the house. Okay, they said, uh, we all jumped, me and my three brothers, my sisters in the same house. And he said, I spoke Hebrew very good back then because I used to work in Israel every summer. I would go work. So two investigators and military behind him in our house, three o'clock in the morning. He said, my, he said, what's your name in Arabic? I said, Jamil. He tell his thing, Zeho, that's him. I didn't even have an identification then, which means I was under 16. I was going to have a heart attack. I hear about them raiding houses and taking people. I hear about them. This is happening to me. Man, I'm a kid. He said to my, my mom started, oh, blah, blah, you, you. He said to, he said to my mom, give me a scarf to put around his neck because it's cool outside so he can get warm. I said to mom, no, 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 mom, don't, don't give me this because I know he wants to rub my, to, to, to rub my eyes with it because it it's often to happen to Palestinians, kid, kids. And he opened the, the closet and he took one of my sister's scarves. He put it around my neck. And the way out, our bathroom is outside the house. And I said, I want to use the bathroom. 
Our bathroom was probably like five, six feet by four feet. He came with me inside. They took me anyway. When, when I stepped outside the house, he said to one of the soldiers, wrap him up in Hebrew. I understood what he said. He wrapped me up. When I came, he wrapped my eyes. I get, it was just a little bit I can see, just a little bit. I got in the Jeep with them. And then I see this sweater with white, black, and blue. It was my friend, the one I hang around with, already took him before me. I said, Nidal? He said, yes. I hate to tell you this. I feel good he was with me because I was terrified. I was scared. They took us. I spent there two weeks, two and a half weeks. What, what's my crime? Graffiti is on the wall against the Israeli occupation. Free Palestine. That was my crime. You know. One last thing is, two, a year later, my brother-in-law is, is staying with us. My, 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 um, my mother, my, uh, my sister's fiance, they weren't married yet. They came for him in our house. Bam, 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 bam. They're here. It's for Rafiq this time. He was older than me. They took him and he said, the same two investigators, they speak Arabic better than I do, fluent in Arabic. He said, you come see me tomorrow at 9 o'clock in the morning. Because he knows me. He took me before. So I went to see him. He said, until 5 o'clock, go home, come back tomorrow. Go home, come back tomorrow. Next day, go home, come back. My mom said, I'm coming with you. I was a kid here. She said, she told him, you want to shoot him now or put him in prison? He is not coming tomorrow. He is not coming. My son is not coming tomorrow. I never went. They never came after me. So peace is the only solution here. The only solution is what you see. That West Bank and Gaza belong to the Palestinians, but free, in a free way. Not an open-air prison like Gaza was. In a free way. This is the way, and I think, I hope the U.S. will kind of put the pressure on both sides to bring them together. I think the U.S. has a lot to do, and the U.S. have a big effect on what's happening there, and uh, I just pray to peace, and if anybody have a question, I can take it, and I'm done. Thank you.